It's good to see so many people. There's more, more and more people that I recognize now that I've been at Vox a while, but I still I'm looking forward to the day when I don't have to see the masks coming back. And it's good to begin this morning to be with you all again. This is my second, actual second semester as an intern here at Vox. It's flying by, but I, I do want to thank this community for allowing me and my wife to be part of it. It's been a wonderful experience. I thought we could start this morning by exploring miracles. We're all familiar with miracles that Jesus performed throughout the Gospels, including healing the leper, restoring sight to the blind, raising Lazarus from the dead, walking on water, feeding the 5,000, and providing the wine at the wedding in Cana. These events all seem to defy the laws of nature, right? Let's take a moment to reflect on whether we've ever observed a miracle, either a miracle in your own life or someone that you know. How was it explained? Did it need to be? It's not really a fair question to ask, honestly. I imagine it's how we define the word miracle is different for all of us as to how we would determine the answers to those questions. Here's a definition of miracle that I came across. It's from Easton's Bible Dictionary. It defines a miracle as an event in the external world brought about by the immediate agency or the simple volition of God. It is an occurrence at once above nature and above human. It shows the intervention of a power that is not limited by the laws of either the, of matter or of mind, a power interrupting the fixed laws which govern their movements, a supernatural power. It's certainly not that I don't believe in miracles, I do, although I've never witnessed or knew of anyone that witnessed a miracle, at least by this definition. Today is what is known as Transfiguration Sunday, where we recognize the transfiguration of Jesus up on the mountain. This is just days after he foretold of the suffering and death to his disciples that would occur in the weeks to come as we're approaching Lent this next week. In the scripture passage from Luke that Matt read for us this morning, Jesus has brought Peter, James, and John up the mountainside with him to pray. And while he's praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly they saw two men, Moses and Elijah, talking to him. They appeared in glory and were speaking of his departure, which was about to be accomplished at Jerusalem. Now Peter and his companions were weighed down with sleep, but since they had stayed awake, they saw the glory and the two men who stood with him. We can certainly read this passage literally, that since they hadn't fallen asleep, that they physically saw Jesus' transfiguration alongside Moses and Elijah, for sure. That would certainly meet the definition that we just had of miracle. It would certainly be an external event brought on by the volition of God that is above nature and above human and above the laws of matter and mind. But on a deeper level of meaning, perhaps the idea of being weighed down with sleep is the mechanicalness by which we live our lives. We're so busy doing things, accomplishing things, going from one task to another as adults, that we fall asleep to the wonders all around us unfolding in every second. 
We're too busy doing life that we find ourselves physically awake but consciously asleep at the same time. But in this instance, the disciples had stayed awake, allowing them to be aware of the possibility of seeing, either with their eyes or their hearts, exactly who Jesus was. This would be considered a miracle in this case, for sure. It certainly was an occurrence that was at once above nature and above human. It shows the intervention of God that was not limited by the laws of either matter or of mind. God's intervention opened them to the opportunity to see in a whole new way, above what their minds convinced them that they knew with certainty. And these miracle moments are always unexpected, and they always shock our senses. Let's remember in Luke chapter 18, verse 27, where Jesus reminds us that is what is impossible for humans is what is impossible for humans is possible for God. God is intervening constantly in our lives in, in an effort to reach us, looking for our intentional attention, to stay awake to the possibility of extraordinary things in the rhythm of our ordinary lives. This text continues, verse 33, just as they were leaving him, Peter says to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he had just said. In verse 33, Peter is taken by the sight and his seeming favor to be present to this indescribable scene. He might have inferred some specialness in him and the others to be present to such a marvel. But isn't that human nature, though, to be enthralled by such a revelation? We want to hang on to extraordinary experiences to control them, to savor them. So Peter says, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He wants to stay in the place of majesty. So this reminded me of a trip my wife Anna and I took back in the fall of 2014. We were staying up at the Napa Valley of California, and instead of drinking at the wineries, we spent days hiking in various parks up and down in California looking at the majestic sequoia trees. On one hike in Bothay National Park, we were hiking a few miles way back in the park, and we were walking along these cliffs that made us walk in a single line, so one behind the other. And there were these huge ravines and drop-offs. But instead of the ravines being empty, they, were, they seemed like bottomless pits. And the sequoia trees were coming up in numerous numbers of them, way up beyond our heads. As we were walking and relishing in the beauty of this place, I was walking behind Anna. We came around the corner of the trail, and something made me stop. I remember calling out to her to stop, which she did. We didn't say anything. We didn't see anything but we were held by the most intense silence we'd ever heard in our lives. This was not a sound of anything. The pressure of this silence was imposing. We were held. We were stunned. It was terrifying, but at the same time, the most comfortable feeling of being held, wrapped, cared for. It lasted only a few seconds, and then it was over. I was shocked to know that my wife had experienced the exact same thing. It was one of those extraordinary moments in our lives, yet there was an attempt the next day to go back to the same spot 
and see if we could capture the moment again. We laughed at the craziness of it. We wanted to control a miraculous moment and own it. We still laugh about it today. But that's exactly what Peter was trying to do. As we continue with scripture in verse 34, while he was saying that a cloud came and overshadowed them and they were terrified as they entered the cloud. Then from the cloud came a voice that said, this is my son, my chosen, listen to him. When the voice had spoken, Jesus was alone and they kept silent and in those days told no one any of the things they had seen. Now this previous verse ends with things they had seen. In the Greek translation of the text, aorikon means to see, but it also means to perceive. So we could also understand this passage as the disciples perceiving Jesus' transfiguration or sensing it, to put it another way. But it still was miraculous by definition. Whether they actually saw Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, or perceived them, God was intervening with the power that was not limited by the laws of matter, which would be seeing, or of mind, which would be perceiving. But what we take from this portion of Scripture is that God reaches us all on God's timeline. And if we're open to and receptive, we receive it. We cannot control it because it is pure gift. And it's futile to try to explain it as it is indescribable, meant only for us in that moment. That's why it's even, tr even difficult to try to describe what Anna and I experienced in Bothe National Park. It's useless. It's like trying to explain to you all what a rose smells like if you've never smelled a rose. It's experiential. Coming back to the text, they all came down the mountain and are met by a great crowd. And in verse 38, just then a man from the crowd shouted, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son. He is my only child. Suddenly a spirit seizes him, and all at once he shrieks. It convulses him until he foams at the mouth. It mauls him and will scarcely leave him. I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, you faithless and perverse generation, how much longer must I be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon dashed him to the ground in convulsions, but Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. And all were astounded at the greatness of God. So the disciples were incapable of offering healing to the boy. Seems likely enough, right? Why would they be able to do such an act? But Jesus is clearly frustrated with them over this. He's clearly showing his humanity here, right? And he gets sideways with them often in the scriptures. As a person that identifies as a one on the Enneagram, I can relate to Jesus' frustration with his disciples because they feel he feels they should be able to. There's that shooting. But why is he frustrated? Because they do have the capability to offer healing to others. We all do. That's what he's been trying to teach them. They are just not open and receptive to it. In Eugene Peterson's The Message, he offers this version of verse 41. Jesus says, what a generation. No sense of God. No focus to your lives. How many times do I have to go over these things? How much longer do I have to put up with this? Jesus is relating to the inattentiveness in their lives, their asleepness, 
and their lack of focus on God. He's suggesting that when we are attentive to God, we do have the ability to co-create miraculous things through God's intercession in us and through us. Perhaps there's another way to define what a miracle is. Charles Eisenstein, in his book, The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know is Possible, offers an an alternative definition of miracle. A miracle is not the intercession of an external divinity in worldly affairs that violates the laws of physics, but something that is impossible from within an old story of the world and possible for a new one. Because a miracle is, by this definition, impossible from where we stand today. We cannot force the universe to produce one. We can, however, give the experience of a miracle to another person. To the extent that we can stand in a new story, we all have the power to be miracle workers. If we break down Charles Eisenstein's definition, a miracle happens when someone experiences a profound change in one's life to see, to perceive something in a new way that seemed impossible inside the heart and mind of that person's world previously. It is the experience of repentance from the Greek word metanoia, which means to change our minds to look in a new direction regarding ourselves and the world that we are experiencing. What are the old stories in our lives that we are holding on to? We all have stories in our worlds that create a sense of certainty that they will not change. This new definition of miracle suggests that we have the chance to create a new story of the world, of our internal world. Perhaps some of you remember the Disney animated movie film Inside Out. It's one of my favorites. So in this movie, this young girl is moved from her home in Minnesota to California, and she experiences lots of emotions, as you'd expect. So the main characters in this film are actually her emotions inside. Joy and sadness, anger, disgust, and fear are some of the characters. It's quite funny. In one scene, joy and sadness and I think it's up there, yeah. They're lost in a maze of memories and thoughts. Sadness, as you'd imagine, is very pessimistic that they can get out of the maze at all, that anything can change in their world. She says, I think we're lost, and there's no way out. Joy is clearly frustrated with her. At one point, Joy stops and says, Sadness, you need to be more positive. And Sadness says, okay, I'm positive that we're lost and that there's no way out of here. But we get the point, right? That sometimes we are certain that our circumstances and our relationships will not change for the better. We're positive they won't change. We become crystallized. In my life coach training days, I learned that your ego is not your amigo. It's a pretty catchy phrase. Probably could have made some money off that one. Our ego is not our friend, but our socially constructed version of what we call me and I. And it's built to protect us from any hurt and discomfort. But what it implies is that our human egos, our personalities, are constructed to protect us from that discomfort and offer us the illusion of comfort and safety. We fall asleep to them, and they run the show. 
a former spiritual teacher of mine, had me consider that our ego is this bridge over the present moment. They keep us ruminating and regretting what's happened in the past and shoots us right over the present moment into the future to create anxiety and fear of the unknown, to convince us that our situations won't improve now in this moment. These feelings lead us to distracting ourselves from these certainties through busyness and the vices that take, that take it off our minds that distract us from this discomfort. We're like, we're like people on a bullet train that are going by life uh, stops so fast that there's never any room to stop and change. Only the present moment offers us these brief moments for miracles where we are open and receptive to the possibility of a new story. Only in the present moments can we catch a breath between the past and the future to discern what God is offering us in the way of seeing and perceiving our world through God's eyes. But how do we do this? Is there any way to break free from this certainty? Yes, but it's not something that we do. God does all the doing, but we can participate. Someone once described our spiritual journey in life as a sailboat. We are all a sailboat. It's our job to tend to our boat and put our sail up. God's winds come in its own way and in its own time, but we can wait with hope. So when the wind does blow, we'll be co-creators with God in the movement towards something new. In a bit of a shameless plug for Centering Prayer, and we had a great workshop here yesterday. Thanks for the people that were here. That's a wonderful practice of letting go, of resting in God. It invites us to put down the busyness of our lives and the constant running just to be present to God. God only wants our attention and intention. It's an act of simply remembering God. In that place that moves beyond actions, thoughts, emotions, and internal voices clamoring to distract us, we can possibly remain awake so as to see or to perceive God's intervention in our lives. In that place, we can begin to break through the crystallization of our old life stories and into possibilities for new ones. How about all of you? What are your spiritual practices that keep you grounded in God's awareness that keeps you awake to see and perceive God's goodness for you and others in your lives. Of course, any miracle that we receive or help to offer another when God uses us as tools is purely God's intervention. God's continual grace is constantly steering our boats. But what if we could begin to see the world as abundant? since we would lose all doubt in God's ability to provide for our daily needs? What if we could begin to see other people as reflections of ourselves? Forgiveness would then be easier as we realize, but for the grace of God, so go I. That's a tough one, right? But I now have come to accept that there are false self parts of me that can betray others and can be led by the needs for approval and love and esteem to behave in ways that are isolating and self-serving. This is especially tough for the people that have hurt us in our lives. Can we try to see that hurt people hurt people? 
and offer forgiveness even though we cannot forget? How about if we took the time to experience the order, beauty, mystery, and connectedness of the universe, a deeper joy and cheerfulness would arise that we wouldn't soon forget? The picture that is up there now, or coming up there now, is a picture that I took in June of 2020. I was sitting outside that morning doing my centering prayer, and as usual, I open my eyes when the bell gets off, and I jump up into my day's activities, running to the next thing to do. But for some reason, as I looked over at our picnic table, there was this gecko sitting there. And I thought to myself, I wonder if I put my hand over if it would actually come on my hand. To be honest, I was thinking the second I did that, that it would scurry off like thousands of other times before. But when I did it that time, it moved onto my hand, and it was content to stay there as long as I would have it. It actually stayed there until I put it down. So there was this innate trust that it had with me. It was a tiny miracle for me, showing connection with creation. It was something that I thought was impossible from within the old story of my world that I kept telling myself. It doesn't seem like a big miracle, but for me it was. It showed me in that brief moment that we are interconnected and dependent on one another. So we are invited to participate in God's miraculous plans for the world. And we are vital to God's plans, either as receivers of miracles in our lives or in service for others through us for their potential miracles. I had a class in seminary called Difficult Conversations, and it was focused on all of the challenging conversations that people in ministry are called to have regarding our BIPOC and LGBTQI siblings, especially around marginalization or worse, when we're feeling rejected and unprotected. One fantastic book from that class was by a black reverend and PhD named Gregory Ellison II, entitled Fearless Dialogues. He offered all of the readers his three-foot challenge. He's referring to the 36-inch circle around ourselves and how we can make conscious efforts to share love and respect for all who enter our 36-inch circle. He shared this in the book. Once you truly come to see a cashier working in a fast food restaurant to try to make a living wage, a drug dealer, a person experiencing homelessness, or a traumatized teenager as someone made in the image of God with a potential and perhaps undiscovered gift that could change the course of that person's life or those of a community, you can no longer disregard that human being. You can no longer overlook them, bypass them, or step over them because you have seen them cross within your three feet and once you see, you cannot not see. I want to invite us all to think about our own three-foot area and all who enter it. Perhaps we can offer a complimentary word for someone, a thank you for your service, hug a teenager who is disappointed, or reach out to someone in whom our acknowledgement or possible apology can be an act that God wanted from us to help to give that person the miracle they long for. God is creating miracles for us and using us as well to be part of the miracles for others. Everything belongs. I'd like to close with this prayer. 
Gracious God, we know that you love us unconditionally and that you are constantly trying to reach us to help lift us up along with the rest of your creation. You are oozing into our world every nanosecond with miracles, either seen or perceived. Give us the strength, the desire, and the ability to find those moments in our days when we simply remember you and are invited into the gift of the present moment where you are eternally here. Help us to know that satisfaction and joy are the only available or only available to us in this present moment where we can be free of rumination, regret, anxiety, and fear. We ask this in your holy threefold name as transcendent creator, eternally present Christ, an imminent indwelling spirit in whom we live and move and have our being. Amen.